Hey, good morning, church family. Thanks so much for being here on this first weekend of fall break. It is always good to see somebody show up on a holiday weekend. I appreciate you being here. If you got a Bible, I want to hear your pages turning to the Gospel of Matthew in the ninth chapter. Let's find <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9 together. If you're a guest with us this morning, especially if you're a first-time guest, we want to give you a special warm welcome. Thank you for joining us and checking us out. And as always, we want to greet all the folks that are joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service today. And before we do anything else, I just want to emphasize the last um, video that you saw on MPTV, and in particular, the sign-ups for the food packing day. That is a Saturday, October the 21st. It is going to happen across the street in our community life center. It starts at 8.30 and it ends at 11. There are two separate shifts. And so you can choose to be a part of one or you can choose to be a part of both if you want to. All you have to do is go online, mpcc.info, go to the events, the upcoming events page and follow that down until you see the food packing event. And then just follow the prompts to sign up. So I hope you'll sign up as a family. I hope you'll sign up as a small group, as a Bible study, uh, maybe as friends and neighbors, because we need a lot of people to pack over 345,000 meals uh, on this uh, Saturday that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. This is the second week of a very special message series called Everyday Evangelism. We began last week by talking about the heart of God that can be clearly seen in three simple stories Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter. This weekend, we're going to look at a very brief passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 9. It's just Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And because we've got a lot to cover today, if you've got your Bibles open that are Matthew chapter 9 and you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest with us, this might seem a little bit odd to you, but Every single weekend when we come together to worship, we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service. And because we love and respect the Word of God, we stand together when we do it. So you follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Here we go. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, or remember the Pharisees represent the religious elite, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Everyone say mercy. Mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Uh, before we go any further, I want to share with you uh, that my message this week was influenced by something I read recently by a man named Kevin Miller, who is a pastor in the Chicago area. I, when I finished my study for writing a message, oftentimes I will go back and just look at see and see what other people have written about the text or the subject, and I was pretty moved by some things I read by him. And having said that, I want to begin by asking you a question. It's the same question I've been asking myself all week, and it's such an important question that I don't want you to ignore it. In fact, I think it would be great if you would write it down. In fact, I think it would be great if you would write it down somewhere in your Bible near Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, maybe in the margin of your Bible. Here's the question. Is my life pleasing to God? And so it's a personal question, something that all of us needs to ask ourselves. 
Is my life pleasing to God? How are you going to answer that question? Maybe I should say, what are you going to use as the basis for your answer to that question? Uh, Are you going to think about how often you go to church, how often you're involved in personal devotions or Bible study or prayer? Would it be how often you serve in or through some ministry in the church in some specific way, how well you control your thought life, how well you control your anger, how well you control your tongue, your words? What's it going to be? What are we going to focus on as we look at ourselves and we ask the question, is my life pleasing to God? Chances are we're going to immediately gravitate to the things that we do. But that's probably not the best approach. And let me tell you why by just sharing a really simple kind of silly story that I think anyone can relate to. Let's say that you're a husband and you have a job where you go to work and primarily you spend your time solving problems. That's what you do. You're a problem solver. You figure things out. You figure out how to make things work. You figure how to get rid of obstacles and on and on and on. So you go to work one day and you spend eight, nine hours working hard at solving problems and you come home after a day of solving problems and you greet your wife who is a stay-at-home mom with two small children by saying, hey, honey, or doll face or whatever name you might have for your wife. How was your day? And she responds by saying, terrible. The kids were fighting with each other all day long, and no matter what I tried, I couldn't get them to stop. It was absolutely miserable. And you, you pause, because that's really not the answer that you were expecting, and you think about it for a couple of seconds, and then you respond, because remember, you're a problem solver. And you say something like this, well, maybe you should find ways to separate them throughout the day. Or then maybe you should say, or, or, or maybe you can even, you know, think through the day and be a little bit more organized and plan enough activities to take up the time of the day so they don't have time to fight and fuss with each other. And when you're finished, your wife looks at you with a look of disappointment unlike anything you have ever seen before in your life. I mean, it's startling to you. And just before she begins to cry, she says... You just don't understand. In an emphatic way, she says, you just don't understand. Now, she's crying. You're confused. And everyone who hears this story thinks you're an absolute moron. (laughs) Why? Because your wife was not looking for you to provide some overly simplified solution to the problem. All she really wanted from you was some empathy and some understanding. That's it. And when she told you how bad her day was, all she wanted to hear you say was something like this. Wow, that sounds really difficult. I am so sorry, but honey, dollface, you are an incredible mother, and our kids are so blessed to have you. Now, what? does that story have to do with Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13? Well, let's go back to the original question. Is my life pleasing to God? When it comes to a question like that, many of us immediately think about what we think God wants to hear 
but most of the time we're wrong. And that's something that we're reminded of in our text. It's really a pretty familiar story if you spend any time in church at all. If you're like me and you grew up in church, you learned this story when you were just a child in Sunday school. Jesus is walking along the road and he sees a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. And so here was this Jewish man sitting at a tax collector's booth representing the government of Rome, which was just wrong. When the Romans who were hated by the Jews came in and took over Israel, they oppressed them and exploited them in a number of different ways. And one of the most significant ways they did that was by recruiting Jewish men who knew the language of the people and the culture of the people to be their tax collectors. And they basically took these men like Matthew and they said, here, you need to collect a certain amount of money every week or every month or however it was in this region of the country from these people in this area. And anything you you collect over that amount, you get to keep. And here's the deal. Here's the catch. There's not anything anyone can do to stop you. You have the full and complete backing of the Roman government. You do whatever you want to do. So from a financial standpoint, there was a huge upside to being a tax collector. The downside was your countrymen hated you. They loathed you because they were just poor working class people trying to get by and you were making that incredibly difficult because every time they caught a fish, you, ca- you taxed the fish. Every time they grew crops, you taxed the crop. Every time they traveled down certain roads, you taxed their travel. And I can go on and on and on. So when Matthew 9, 9 says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He saw a man who everyone viewed as a dishonest, greedy, cheat and betrayer of his people. So what does Jesus do? Does he walk up to Matthew and say, hey, dude, you have made some terrible choices and done irreparable damage to your life and your reputation? No. Does he say, listen, you need to clean up your life. You gotta get it together. If you continue down this this road, it's only gonna end one way and that's in tragedy and despair. No. What does Jesus say? I'm going to put up on the screen because I want you to read it with me. I want to hear your voices. It's found in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, what we might call verse 9b. Read those two words with me. Let me hear your voices. He said, follow me. And we know that what he meant was follow me and be my disciple. So he looks at this greedy man, this hated man, this, this turncoat, this sellout, this betrayer of his people and said, basically, listen, I want you to be one of my 12 closest friends. And I want you, Matthew, to become one of the most influential leaders in this new movement of God that I am bringing into the world. And listen, it wasn't a mistake. What Jesus said to Matthew that day wasn't a mistake because Matthew's life was genuinely changed. And I say that even though we don't really know a whole lot about Matthew. We can say that he was among the original disciples. He was the most notorious sinner that there was by virtue of the fact that he spent his time as a tax collector. Nobody else had that on their resume. 
But once he began to follow Jesus, that changed. And the surprising thing about not knowing much about Matthew is you'd think we'd know a lot about him because he is the author of the single longest record in the Bible of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew that we've got our Bibles open to now. 28 chapters are spent detailing the life of Jesus from the beginning all the way to the end. But Matthew evidently became a very humble, very self-effacing man because he, not, he, he never brought any attention to himself. In fact, if you, started, if you went home after church today and you started in Matthew chapter one and you conclude in Matthew chapter 28, you would only find two places in the entire gospel where he references himself. The first one is right here in Matthew chapter nine, the text that we read earlier when we stood together where he gives a brief, brief description of his call. And the second one is in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter, chapter 10, when he simply lists his name among the 12 disciples. That's it. That's the only reference Matthew makes to himself in the 28 chapters of the gospel of Matthew, which was so powerful because he wrote the gospel of Matthew with Jewish readers in mind, and it was so impactful on Jewish readers for that reason. Tradition tells us that after Jesus' death and resurrection that Matthew ministered among the Jews in Israel and abroad and eventually was martyred for his faith. But we know absolutely no specific detail about any of that. Some historians, I guess, for lack of a better word, want to say that he traveled to modern-day Iran and then he traveled down to Ethiopia because he was following already established trade routes to preach the gospel. Some Historians say that he actually died a martyr's death when he was stabbed to death in Africa. But again, there is no reliable historical source to make us believe that those things are absolutely true. But he did live his life for Jesus. And so Jesus didn't make a mistake that day. When he walked up to this man that no one else would give the time of day to, and said, follow me. Just like he didn't make a mistake when he called you, whenever that was in your life. Or he called me. But that's not where the story ends. Because ultimately, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples for a greater time of fellowship. He invited them to his home for dinner. And as we just read in our text, I don't know if you noticed it or not, you probably did because you look like really smart people. As we read in our text, there were many other tax collectors and sinners there with Jesus, the disciples, and Matthew as well. And so the question, the obvious question would be, well, why would he do that? Why would Matthew invite other tax collectors, people that were hated because of who they were and other sinners, whatever they had done, to have this dinner with Jesus and the disciples. And you could probably give a lot of answers, but how about this one? They were the only friends he had. They were the only ones who'd spend any time with him. They're the only ones who would accept an invitation like that. But Jesus is there. And when the Pharisees, who remember, <clears throat> are the religious elite, they are the righteous, the clearly righteous people. They are the ones who, if you ask them the question, is my life pleasing to God? They would say, well, brother, how much time do you got? Because it absolutely is. Let me tell you why. The Pharisees saw this 
and they were indignant and asked Jesus' disciples, do you remember this question? Why was Jesus eating with such bad people? Why was he eating with such disreputable people? Why was he spending his time with the absolute scum of the earth? Because the obvious inference is, doesn't Jesus realize that if he's spending time with people like this, especially spending time eating with them, that he's condoning what they do and he's making it look like they are okay? Doesn't Jesus know the first verse of Psalm 1 that says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffer or the mocker? Doesn't Jesus know those words? But notice Jesus' response, and this is really the central part of the message. When he heard that question, <clears throat> this is what he said, Mrs. Matthew 9, verse 12 and 13, again, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, everyone say mercy again, mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And friends, that's the heart of Jesus on the most practical level. Last week, we saw the heart of God in those three simple stories Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. And this week, in this brief encounter with Matthew, we see the heart of Jesus in those words. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And just so there's no confusion, let me make it even more simple for you. Jesus' heart is focused on mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, like I know many of you are, because there's some great Bible students in this church, those words aren't original to Jesus. They're first found in the Old Testament book of Hosea, spoken by the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 is the reference, to be specific. And so God is saying first through Hosea and now through Jesus that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Remember the story that we started with about the husband, the problem-solving husband who came home to the discouraged, frazzled wife because the kids refused to get along and he gave her some overly simplified solution when all she wanted was empathy and love? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because it's easy for people like you and me to get confused about what it is that God really wants from us. That's why we started with the question, is my life pleasing to God? Don't make the mistake of thinking sacrifices don't matter to God because they absolutely do. Sacrifices are essential to our faith. Sacrifices are essential to Christianity. Every week when we come together, we remember and commemorate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross through the taking of the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful communion meditation Spencer Piercefield gave us this morning, reminding us of the power behind those elements and why we pause to take the Lord's Supper. We bring the sacrifice of our time. We bring the sacrifice of our talents. We bring the sacrifice of our treasure as well as other sacrifices because sacrifices are pleasing to God. But think of it like this. This story of Jesus calling Matthew teaches us that showing mercy, mercy to people whose lives are messy for whatever reason is more pleasing to God than the sacrifices that happen in the religion of the righteous. 
This story of Jesus calling Matthew teaches us that showing mercy to people whose lives are messy, regardless of the reason, are more pleasing to God than the sacrifices that happen in the religion of the righteous. Now, I'll be the first to say that's a pretty strong statement, even perhaps a shocking statement. Because it's easy to think that God is most interested in whether or not I'm having my daily quiet time or whether or not I'm reading my Bible and committing Scripture to memory so that it gets inside of me or whether or not I'm tithing or whether or not I'm using my spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ or whether I'm serving in some tangible way that clearly gives the evidence of a right life. And I'm not saying God's not interested in those things because he is, God is interested in everything we do. But here's what I get from the story of Matthew's conversion. Let me say it like this. I see your heart in your quiet time. I see your heart in your commitment to the scriptures. I see your heart in your sacrifice, in the obedience of giving your tithe, in the obedience of worship because these are all good things. These are all right things, but it would be even better and more pleasing to me if you would also add showing mercy to people to whom I show mercy. It would be wonderful if you would choose them, people with messy lives like Matthew, like I do. If you would choose them like I chose Matthew. I remember the first year that I was here at Mount Pleasant, which is 22 years ago this month. We moved here in October of 2001. And I told a story of how Sandy and I bought our first house, a little 1,200 foot or square feet starter home that was just horrible house. Every time the air conditioner came on, the whole house shook like that. But you know, it was your first house, right? And that's special. And one, one of the things that we did, because we moved in in the summer, one of the first things we did was we went out and bought a lawnmower, and I mowed my yard. I lo- first time I ever mowed my yard. It wasn't very big, so it didn't take very long. And then I thought, well, I really want this to look nice, so I'm going to edge the sidewalk. And this was in, 2000, oh, this was in um, probably around 19... 83 or something like that. And so I didn't have a, a, a powered edger of any kind. So I had, and some of you remember this, that long pole that had a wheel at the end of it that had spikes coming off the wheel, right? And you set it on the, on the side of the sidewalk and you just, <clears throat> just with just sweat and manpower, you went up and down and tried to <laughs> edge the sidewalk. And it was pretty brutal. And I looked up one point and there was a guy walking down the sidewalk and he had an electric edger and a big old long extension cord in his hand. And he came down and introduced himself to me as my neighbor, Tony. He lived two houses down from me. He said, my name is Tony. I live two houses down. And I saw you out here working so hard uh, to try to edge the sidewalk. I thought this might help. And he gave me his electric edger and the, and the long extension cord. He said, if that extension cord is not long enough, I've got another one. Feel free to come down and get it. And so I was just so thankful. And I thought, wow, what a nice place. I mean, this, oh, we lived in Texas. People are friendly in Texas, you know, right? <laughs> and then... Before he walked away, he said, and by the way, my wife and I 
are hosting a cocktail party tonight at our house with some friends and neighbors, and we would love it if you and your wife would come. I'm telling you, I was just stunned in the moment. I'd never been invited to a cocktail party in my life. I'm all of what I say, you know, what am I? I'm 22, 23 years old, something like that. Grown up in this church my whole life where I was taught a whole lot more about what we were against than what we were for. And so quickly I said, well, I appreciate the invitation, but I'm a pastor. I don't go to cocktail parties. And he was so kind. He said, well, okay, I understand. Hey, feel free to use the edger. Just bring it back when you're done, which I did. I used it. I took it back when I was done. And I never had another single conversation with Tony the rest of my life. Not for the rest of my life. Now, I want to tell you something that's going to sound a little bit odd. I was, as I think back about that, I think I was probably preconditioned for that kind of response. Because it was a different, it was a different day and age. And as I mentioned, I grew up in this little church in Tulsa, Oklahoma that I love. It, it, it will all, I, I mean this from my heart. That little church that I grew up in was called Osage Hills Christian Church will always be the greatest church that I've ever been a part of in my life. Always. Because that's where I first met Jesus. I wasn't sitting at a tax collector's booth, but I wasn't probably far from it in the fact that I was a sinner separated from God with a great need. And there were people there who loved me and nurtured me and saw things in me that I might have never seen in myself. But I was taught a lot more about what I was against than what I was for. And I was taught about a life of faith that drew lines between good people and bad people, right? It was just a part of how I was raised. And so when this really, really nice guy invited me to a cocktail party, I just shifted into this mode where, <laughs> if you only knew you're talking to, dude, you wouldn't do that. And I lost any chance I might ever have to have any spiritual influence on his life. And I will tell you that that's one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life as a pastor. I told you that at the, beginning of, at the beginning of the message, I told you that I was influenced in this message by something I read written by a man named Kevin Miller. He was referencing this same story of Jesus calling Matthew. He shared this story about how some time ago, he and his wife and his daughter were on vacation in Florida, and they were in a Barnes & Noble bookstore when suddenly his daughter passed out and fell. Now, she hit her head. They don't know whether she hit her head on the table or they, she just hit her head on the ground because nobody actually saw it happen, but she hit her head pretty hard and was unconscious for a brief time. An ambulance came, and they checked her out, and they said, listen, I think we need to take her to the hospital uh, to just be safe. And when they got to the hospital, they discovered that there was bleeding on her brain. And so she stayed in the hospital for a few days for testing and observation. And as Kevin Miller writes about that, he writes about how impressed he was with the treatment she received, in particular from the nurses who were so kind to her. Listen, I'll just read to you what he writes. He said about the nurses, they would lean over the bed and say, how are you doing? And they would take her hand and pat it and say, I hope you feel better, honey. He said, we were in the South where they call you honey. And then he said, because it was also a part of the Bible Belt, some of them would take her hand and say, I'm praying that you will get better soon. And he writes, it was so sweet. And I thought, man, that's wonderful. 
But then he says, on the other side of the curtain, because it was one of those rooms that you share with another patient, he said, on the other side of, the, of a very thin curtain in the room, I noticed a patient who was about my daughter Anne's age, but there was no mercy there. The hospital staff said things like, wake up, wake up, come on now, talking to her in a rough tone. And he writes, I didn't understand that until they started to examine her and she started to swear at them like a sailor. What the blank, you blankety blanks? Why are you so late? What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? You blank, 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 and on and on and on. He thought, okay, they're here trying to help her and she's swearing at them, so maybe that's why. But then he wrote, but the real answer came out the next morning when the doctor came in on his rounds and instead of coming over to the bed like he'd done with Anne, instead of taking her hand and looking her in the eyes and smiling at her, the doctor stood back about five feet from the end of the bed right in line with my vision where I was sitting on the other side of the room and he yelled at the patient. So where does your arm hurt? Show me your arm. Wow, that's quite an abscess. Do you shoot up? She said, yeah. When was the last time you shot up? She said, yesterday morning. What are you shooting up with? She said, heroin. Have you had an HIV test? She said, no. Okay, we're gonna have to get that abscess lanced, and then he left. He did his professional duty, but he showed no mercy. Unsurprisingly, because inside their hearts, the medical professionals are thinking, you brought this on yourself, I know we're going to see you back here in about three weeks. And as it turned out, this was the third time this abscess had been treated. But then Kevin Miller wrote these words. But if Jesus went into that same hospital room, he would lean over the bed, take her hand and say, I'm here for you. I hope you feel better, honey. I'm praying for you. Because this is what pleases the heart of God who said, I desire mercy even more than sacrifice. So let me begin to close our time in the scriptures together the same way that we began. Let me ask you a question. What would the practice of mercy, the genuine practice of mercy look like for you and for me in the context of everyday evangelism, every day having our eyes open to the people around us who are a long way from God regardless of the reason. What would the practice of mercy look like for you and me in the context of everyday evangelism? Here's how I answer that question first. I got two answers. Here's my first one, and it's gonna sound odd. It would look like mercy. And I know that sounds strange, but here's what I mean. It wouldn't look like weakness. And it wouldn't look like compromise. It would just look like mercy. And I think that's something that needs to be said because in Jesus's day, and I'm sure this is true in our day, on some level at least, for many people, in Jesus' day, there was no mercy because mercy was always viewed as a sign of weakness. I've told you that before. Even, even one philosopher uh, who was uh, prominent in Jesus' day called mercy the disease of the soul. And this lack of mercy wasn't just a cultural thing. It was a part of the religious world as well. That's why the Pharisees 
would stand outside of Matthew's home watching Jesus have dinner with tax collectors and sinners and say, why in the world does your teacher spend time with people like this? And Jesus, one of the main reasons why he was so conflicted with the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious elite so often in the gospels because they were in conflict about this very thing. That's why Jesus said a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, I'm not sure if you remember this from when we went verse by verse through Matthew's gospel, but you get to Matthew chapter 23 and Jesus, this is a scathing chapter on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus makes some powerful statements about them that all begin with the words, woe to you, which are words that nobody ever wants to hear from God. And in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, this is what Jesus says to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, exclamation point. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, note this, mercy and faithfulness. He said, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. How, how do I know if my life is pleasing to God? Well, here's the way. I give a tenth of everything that I get. Forget about the fact that I have no mercy. I'm checking all the boxes over here with the things that I do. That's why Jesus, when he introduced this countercultural lifestyle that he was bringing into the world in the Sermon on the Mount that begins with the Beatitudes, that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That word merciful in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word elios. We'll put it up on the screen. You can see a definition. Merciful elios is kindness toward the miserable and afflicted joined with the desire to help them. So it's not just an emotion of like, oh, that's too bad. It's connected to some kind of action to help them. And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking you could say that the Greek word elios for merciful is very, very similar to the Greek word charis, which is translated grace, in that they both reflect kindness. Grace is God's unmerited kindness that he gives to us in salvation, something that we could never earn on our own and we would never deserve. Elias is God's kindness to somebody who's in trouble and who's in misery, joined with a desire to do something about that to help them. But here's the difference. On a practical level, where grace, God's unmerited kindness of grace, extends pardon, expends, extends pardon for sin, Elias, the mercy or the, the kindness God shows us in mercy extends relief. Grace extends pardon, mercy extends relief. And let me just tell you that every single person you and I know. Every single person you and I lock eyes with every single day of our lives who is not a Christian, who is not a follower of Jesus, is living in the misery of sin and separation from God. They might not recognize that as the cause of their misery, but that is the cause because they aren't living the way God created them to live. And when you're not living the way God created you to live, which is in fellowship with him, then you're living your life out of place. 
And what that person needs is the grace of God to forgive their sin, to pardon their sin that separates them from God. But oftentimes, it's the mercy of kindness from people like you and me that opens the door to being able to share the message of God's grace. I was thinking about the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter eight. Let me just read it to you. You don't turn there because I'm already in the red and it's a short passage. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these guys shadow Jesus everywhere he goes. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses says, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The teacher of the law and the Pharisees showed no mercy to this woman. Listen, let's just say it for what it is. Not only did they show no mercy to this woman, they didn't care about her at all. She was absolutely nothing to them. Nothing but a pawn in some foolish, misguided attempt to trap Jesus. But they could have defended what they were doing by their, what we would call their self-righteous motivation. They could have said, we didn't make her commit adultery. That's something she did on her own. Or they could have said, we're just standing up for God because he's the one who gave the commandment against adultery. We're just protecting the righteousness of God. I can't go to your cocktail party because I'm standing for God. But Jesus showed her mercy. That's what we see in the story. And some might try to accuse him of being soft on sin because he didn't say, well, she broke the law of Moses, so it's cut and dried, she needs to be stoned. But Jesus wasn't being soft on sin because in the end, what did he do? He looked at her and said in the latter part of verse 11, go now and leave your life of sin because that's, that's what she needed. She needed mercy. She had all the judgment that she ever needed for her entire life. She needed someone to be merciful She had all the self-loathing that she needed, all the regret. She didn't need help with any of those things. She just needed mercy. And that's what Jesus gave her. And if you think about it, let's be honest. Every single one of us who are right now in this service or listening to this service, every single one of us, if we're honest as followers of Christ, would have to say that we have all in some way in our own right stood in the exact same place that woman was standing, fully aware of our sin and fully aware of what we deserve because of our sin. Equally desperate for someone to show some mercy. 
And so the practice of mercy, if we chose to embrace that in the context of everyday evangelism, would look like mercy. Real, biblical, Jesus-style mercy. That's my first answer. My second one is really quick. Not only would it look like mercy, but it would look like Jesus. It would look like Jesus who invited Matthew, a miserable sinner, an outcast, to follow him and become one of his closest friends and to live a life of significance. It would look like Jesus who invited sinners, tax collectors and sinners, outcasts, to sit down and share a meal. It would look like Jesus who is willing to give people, everyday people, what no one else oftentimes is willing to give them. And that's mercy. Everyday evangelism looks like ordinary people like you and me who've been changed by the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus sharing that same gift with people that we encounter in a relational way. Don't tell me, even for a second, that you just can't be involved in evangelism. Just don't tell me that. Because that's a lie that you're believing. All you have to do is live a life of mercy and let God do the rest.